0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Toya Richie, thank you so much for joining Reloscope today. It is absolutely my
1: pleasure to be here.
0: I'm really, really excited to talk about our topic today, which is about romantic passion and the benefits of exploring your sexuality within your romantic relationship. Um, but I thought before we kind of get into it, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? You're a sexologist here in Melbourne. Um, what does your work entail? Uh,
1: well, at the moment, I'm working with individuals and couples to explore issues that have to deal with sex, intimacy and relationships. And that looks like counselling at the moment and also sexuality workshops. And I try to keep a bit of a creative element in there to help people open up and connect with the different themes that are going on.
0: It says that um, you, you work with sexuality and art and the intersection between the two as well. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Well, I feel like you can't have art without there being some sort of sex and sexuality involved because it's an expression. And I feel like if people start to think about sex as an expression in the same way that art is an expression, then it kind of makes more sense how you are with it and how you relate to other people with it. Like when you look at a piece of art and somebody else doesn't like it, you don't take away from their opinion of it. You're just like, oh, okay, so we see different things. Or two people can look at the same artwork and feel different ways about it. And so that's the same thing with sex and sexuality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And I guess there's like kind of these intrinsic inherent feelings that kind of go into both of them. You know, you can't really, there's no real um, kind of, you can guide them to a certain extent, but you can't, it's kind of deep down. It's not something
1: that you can just create out of the blue, if that makes sense absolutely and you also can't take away somebody else's experience you give them space for that experience and i think if we treated sex in the same way each person is coming at it differently and you're respecting their experience even if it's not your thing then i think it could just we we would connect a lot easier
0: Yeah, no kink shaming um, in general. Exactly. Um, So I guess before we get into the kind of main topic of our show, I what we have a segment called "Have You Met Toya Ritchie?" Where uh, I just ask you a few quick questions, um, (laughs) and we so that the audience can get
1: to know you a little bit better. Are you happy to answer them?
0: Absolutely. All right. uh, What is your favorite book?
1: Well, it's it's really hard for me to come up with one favorite book. I think um, books are such an escape. They connect you to the world. They open your eyes, and you can see so many different things. I can say what's next on my reading list is "Their Eyes Were Watching God," and it's by Zora Neale Hurston, and it's basically um, she was a she was a um, African American anthropologist. And she did a lot of work in Haiti and everything, and her way of looking at cultures and kind of bringing her own culture to it while also respecting the culture that it came from, I think is really powerful and really kind of needed in the way that we look at culture now and the way it's it's kind of become very politicized and everything. But I think she offers um, a gentle example of a way to do that.
0: Yeah, I think somewhere in this conversation of trying to understand other people and trying to understand other cultures, we forget that we have our own nuances and experiences that we bring into that understanding. Absolutely. And it's
1: so important to acknowledge that. Yes, yes. I mean, mean, you can't can't deny it. You can't take it away. And I think that that's what we're trying to segregate, not segregate, but separate the two things too much but your experience of it has to be included in your understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about a favorite movie? Um, again, (laughs) I watch so many movies and in particular since I've started counseling with people, I find that I tend to store a lot of excess emotion. So I like to watch kind of intense movies and then I have emotional responses and it's a way to kind of get them out. But, um, what's next on my list is everything everywhere all at once. We, we've had lots of um, things about multiple realities and everything, and it's really clever yeah. the way that that's done. So um, so when you
0: say it's next on your list, have you seen it yet? No, oh. I
1: haven't seen it. So I've it, seen
0: it three times. Oh. It is incredible. Oh, it's great. so good. It's great. I can't wait to see it then. <laughs>
1: um, what about a podcast you've been listening to? I'm not going to ask for your favorite. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What is favorite? Um <laughs> Um, at the moment, I've been listening to Case 63, mm-hmm. which is um, a podcast that's kind of a story. And it's, a, it's an apocalyptic story that tends to be a genre that I gravitate towards. And um, yeah, it's about a guy who's traveled back in time and he has to go through these um, psychotherapy sessions to prove that he's not crazy, but and then convince the psychologist to also help him save the world from a pandemic. So it's... Um, yeah, it's been really interesting. That sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. and very timely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well. Yeah. Uh,
0: what about um, a role model that a famous role model that you looked up to?
1: Yeah, it's at the moment um, the person that's resonating most with me is Audre Lorde, and um, she wrote an essay. Um, uh, she's a kind of she's a feminist, kind of third wave feminism, and she wrote an essay about eroticism as power. And it's such a good example of a way to integrate your sexuality and your eroticism into your whole being. And she approaches it with joy. and it's um, and and I think that that's often missing as well when you talk about sex and eroticism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what's the last course that you completed? Um, I completed my master of sex sexology. Oh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> yes. Thank you. That was um, yeah, it was it was very transformative and um, and very enjoyable. and it kind of set me up on my whole path. Even at the beginning of that, I didn't think that I wanted to be a counselor and work with people in that way. but when I did my placement and I was working with um, people that had chronic illness and talking to them about how to connect with their sexuality, I was just like, oh my God, I love this. So, um, so I I think it's really great that, you know, you can go throughout life and continue to surprise yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that is so cool. Um, and congratulations again. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I guess that brings us to the end of that segment. Um, you are known, uh, but Mm -hmm. I guess we might move on to, um, our main topic of the evening, which is about romantic passion, um, and exploring your sexuality, Our podcast is about relationships, specifically romantic relationships. So I wanted to start at the top. How would you define a relationship?
1: Uh, A relationship would involve an understanding between two people. There's usually some level of emotion involved. There's connection that's involved and there's different levels of connection and different ways to connect. So it's unique to those individuals. Um, And then there's a commitment a commitment to be together, to spend time together, to do, to, to whatever your relationship is based on. It's committing to do that thing. Mm
0: -hmm. And in your opinion, you know, romantic relationships, which is kind of what our show is about, do they hold the same meaning and importance as they did perhaps decades ago?
1: Well, The science is telling us no. Okay. Okay, cool. (laughs) That um, particularly with um, millennials coming up, that they're having a hard time connecting and forming relationships and that they're finding that they'd much rather be single or on their own than having to navigate all of the social conventions and everything that's associated with being in a relationship.
0: Yeah, I I think that... um, it, perhaps the feeling, you know, that romantic feeling might stay the same, but there's just so much messiness that kind of society has placed on forming that connection that I think can be really difficult to navigate. I'm the same in that I choose to stay single as well, uh, but I am nosy, which is why I, I, I love to hear it when other people <laughs> in their relationships. Um, I guess, uh, kind of
1: how, how do you define romantic passion then? Well, uh, romantic passion, it's, it's really tricky to define. And what I'm going to say a lot throughout this is that it's based on the individual, Mm. you know, but, but, you know, it's, it's all of those things that kind of have that head body emotional response, you know? So passion is often um, connected to desire and arousal. So it could even just be, it's someone who's your friend that you want to have sex with. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's kind of how you can define romantic passion.
0: Right, right. And is, I guess this might be a stupid question, Um, is sexual passion different or are they kind of overlapping a fair amount?
1: I think they're different, definitely different ways to connect. And Mm -hmm. I think romantic passion implies that there's an emotional as well as the sexual connection. Gotcha. And so there's lots of people that are just happy with just the sexual passion and that's all they want to pursue. And, um, and that can make them feel like a complete person and like it's adding to them. And then other people are like, yes, I want that, but I want the romantic element as well. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense.
0: So I guess how then does romantic passion affect a relationship?
1: Um, well, it's a good question. And it's, it's the reason why I end up seeing a lot of my clients is because they're like, something's wrong. The romantic passion isn't there. So I suppose in the early days of a relationship, you have all the chemicals that are coming in and that is what I think most people attach the passion to. Mm -hmm. So you have these chemicals, they're wanting to pull you together and, um, you know, that's like, um, they're kind of like hormones, but really it's your body. That's like priming you to be close to this person, to have sex so that you can, um, make babies and, you know, prolong, um, help the human race <laughs> survive, you know? So there's a biological function that does take over and that we're wired for, but then, you know, because of the way culture and society has developed, like those, those emotions, and really that kind of comes from, um, wanting to stay around to take care of the children, you know? But because we don't have to have children now, now those emotions become something else. Yeah. You know, so what's the connection? Why do we want to stay with the person? And the thing is, is that what the reasons why we're there in the beginning, they may not be the same reasons like in a few years. So it's like we, but we don't evolve our understanding, our ideas of passion. So to simply answer your question, I think romantic passion is the emotion and and the sexual expression of your connection and the intimacy that that survives in the relationship, that exists in the relationship.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm glad that
1: you brought up kind
0: of the hormones as well because I think a lot of people, when they think about passion, they think it's like a very strong um, kind of almost bodily or biological experience. And I think romantic passion... um, can easily be understood as that kind of, those, that rush of hormones at the very beginning of the relationship. And then it's gone. And then it's like, do you experience romantic
1: passion anymore? Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the we know that once you get used to being with the person, it kind of changes and it becomes like just the, a deep seated affection. So it's almost like an ember that, that lasts. And the way you build that is by the connections you have in other areas of your life. So if you can still have stimulating conversations, if you do really well at running the business of life together, if you have like good social networks and you combine in those ways, you know, if you have um, physical touch and things like that, and then yes, sex is definitely a part of that, but it's only, it's only one part of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: And I guess can we learn to cultivate romantic passion? Is that even possible or is it just something that's inherent to us?
1: I think I think you can, but I think you have to be um self-aware and you have to explore. So part of it is your understanding of yourself and what gives you pleasure and the things that excite you. So if you have other areas in your life where you're developing passion and pleasure, then that can be translated into sexual pleasure. So the science says that any area that you experience pleasure in, it all activates the same area in your brain. So even sexual activity and orgasm and things like that, that cause pleasure, they're parallel. So, um, you know, if you enjoy um, going for walks, reading, you know, exercise, all of that will make your sex better.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess... (sighs) What is kind of coming to like the aspect of sexual exploration? Uh, I, I think that ties in at very nicely, actually. Um, how, how does, what role does sexual exploration play in building
1: um, a romantic relationship? I think it's it's really cr- crucial. Um, and a lot of what I do when I'm working with couples is to remind them, that it is exploration. And the thing that I say all the time is curiosity and wonder. And I guess that's why part of the reason why I call myself a creative sexologist is because it is about um, igniting your creativity and then applying it to sex. So you're like, okay, well, I'm bored because we have the same sex all the time. Well, of course you don't want to do it then. Of course you're going to disconnect from it. But why do you have the same sex every time? What do you want to try that's different? You know, if you think about it in a playful way, and I think play is often in playfulness, silliness is often missing. in a lot of these dynamics, it's like we have to be serious. You know, it's like intense, it's passionate. But um, but play and joy and the curiosity and wonder, I think, is what you have to keep in your head to keep the sexual exploration going in order to keep that sexual connection and the passion strong. Mm. What
0: do you like when you say that some people take sex a bit too seriously like what what are people saying to you that kind of gives you that impression or makes makes it come across that way
1: i think um th- there's been times when you know couples have presented and they have a lot of trauma they have a lot of issues that they're having and everything and then and then we we kind of break it down and I, and and i challenge them on what they're doing and like well what do you want to do and they're like ah oh, I just wish you know it, we could just have more fun with it, and I'm like, well, why can't you have fun with it? And then it's almost like a light bulb moment. They're like, oh yeah, that's right, we can have fun, you know. So I think when you deal with sex, there's emotion that comes out because you know we store emotion in our bodies, you know whether whether we realize it or not. And often, sex is like one of the most intimate acts, physical acts that you can have with someone. It's all going to come out. It's all going to come up and we put up these barriers. And because that moment is so intensely intimate, things come up, but we don't necessarily know what to attach them to. So then that's why then we have the idea of sexual function and dysfunction. And so then suddenly things won't work the way that we want them to. You know, but when you release the pressure off yourself, then suddenly things work. And so one of the best ways to release the pressure is to approach it with playfulness. And that curiosity and that wonder. Because when you're curious, you if you fail, it's not a disaster, you know? And and that's what I think a lot of um, the research is saying about people now when they approach sex, they don't want to do it because they don't want to fail. Yeah. And then people end up having a lot of bad sex and they're like, oh, why should I go back there? You know, but instead they're like, okay, that was bad. What can I do to make it better? you know, like you do in basically all the other areas of your life, like that's not the outcome that I wanted. How can I make it into something that I do want?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, I would imagine that, um, some, like we tend to be raised as well to take sex a bit seriously when in actual fact, it's like really awkward. And when you're not kind of in the heat of the moment, it can come across as kind of silly. And I think that, I don't know, it might be better to lean into that a bit more.
1: Absolutely. And I think if you approach, especially like your first sexual experiences, if you're approaching them with playfulness, and really that's kind of why the sexual awakening is at the age that it is, because it is, because you're all about experimenting and trying things. And like, if it's bad, it doesn't bother you. So I think that's how it should just be approached and don't take it so hard if it doesn't work, because it's really hard to make it work. You wouldn't expect to pick up an instrument and just be able to play it, you know, perfectly. But so many people expect like, oh, you know, I've seen porn or, oh, I've heard heard people talk about it, that I know everything there is to know about sex. But it's like, well, you know what's out there, you know the information, but you don't know how you are with it. And that's a journey of exploration. It's a lifelong journey of exploration.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And what are, I guess, some of the misconceptions around um, sexual exploration?
1: Um, I guess that everybody else is having more and better sex, <laughs> you know, that everybody is doing it perfectly or that ex- it exists as it is in porn. Um, one thing that I say all the time is that you don't watch Jurassic Park to learn how to be a paleontologist. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you can't watch it. Porn is entertainment. So You can't watch it and expect to to learn about yourself because there's so many things that's missing. There's the context, there's the emotional negotiation, the consensual negotiation, all of that, like the the connection, the levels of connection between the people. So a lot of times people end up um, not realizing that like, "Oh, oh, sex has been so terrible for me, but they've never had sex with someone that they really care about. And then once that happens, they're like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. Oh, I need to have that emotional connection in order for sex to work. You know, so that's why it's it's important to explore, but start by exploring yourself, your own body, you know, through masturbation or whatever, um, you know, finding out what parts give you pleasure, because otherwise you can't expect anybody else to satisfy you if you don't know what gives you pleasure.
0: Yeah, I guess, um, are there kind of certain types of sexual activities or behaviors that are kind of more tied to that emotional connection? Do you feel, or is that is that quite not quite how it works?
1: Um, no, I don't think that it's like someone can be into really hardcore like BDSM, but still need an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really just based on the person. But I would say that because so many people are disconnecting from sex, and in this age of um, you know app dating and everything that people actually want more emotional connection than what's available, but they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to ask for that. But also I guess emotional connection doesn't mean that you have to be with that person for forever. You know, how can you just connect with someone and be like, okay, well, even if it's going to be a one night stand, I still need to feel emotionally connected to you. So then you think about what do you need to feel that and then negotiate that with your partner to get, to make that happen.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I guess that kind of brings me to my next question, which is how do couples navigate differences
1: in those preferences um, and in what they need? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big question. And again, it's it's why a lot of couples end up coming to see me. And I think it's um being flexible and recognizing that it's okay to have um differences, it's okay to have different motivations for wanting to have sex. Some um, Within the relationship, you should think of reasons why we want to have sex or why it's important for our relationship and have that discussion. But otherwise, what I've found um, is usually the thing is, and it's really boring, but 80% of good sex is communication. And so your ability to say, okay, um, I don't think that I can do that, but I can do this. And your partner to say, okay, I really like it when you do that. Can you maybe tell me when you might feel comfortable or what you need to feel comfortable to do that on occasion? You know, so, so it's just, it's a process of negotiation, but that communication has to come up, but we, we haven't been taught how to talk about sex. And then usually if there's a problem, um, each person becomes really silent about it and, um, and like kind of withdrawn
0: yeah that's very true and i think that um i guess that kind of brings me also to another question i have which is when there is that when there is a com- when they are communicating but the preferences are so difficult to kind of come to an agreement about you know for example if you are if your partner wants to do something that you just give that just gives you the ick how, how do you negotiate that? Like, how would you handle that kind of conversation?
1: Well, I suppose it's, um, it's always comes back to what you feel safe in the sexual experience. So the question that you have to ask yourself and, and that I work through a lot of times with my clients is, number one, okay, is it an absolute no? If it's an absolute no, then that's okay. You know, and, and then your partner, you know, they, they can decide what to do with that. So, and if it's an absolute no for you, then, um, and it's really important to your partner, then um, what are other ways your partner can explore that? What are What are different things that you can do? So, so that's one way to look at it. The other way is to negotiate what do you need to feel safe? What do you need to still like maybe if you want to do that thing, it has to be because you want to do it, not because your partner wants you to do it. Because that's one way to have bad sex is always to do it because your partner wants to do it. But um, you know, you think, okay, maybe there's some things that I can try to do this that would make me feel more safe. So, so that's always what you come back to: what will give you a safe, pleasurable, and satisfying sexual experience. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you negotiate that, but then, you know, it could be, it's like, okay, well, why is it giving you the egg? Why is it so important to your partner? So you start to see why communication becomes like so important because then it's usually not the thing itself. There's always something else behind it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I suppose I'm assuming in your experience, in most cases, people end up do coming to a compromise that actually
1: manages both of their expectations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is, um, there is a bit of flexibility involved, you know, and, but, you know, there's, people are different and there's other areas of the relationship as well that they're not going to be able to come to an agreement on. So, you know, so then you can look at, okay, well, how do you resolve that? You know, you're like, okay, well, you know, this person does this thing, this person does that thing, and we're both happy. So then how can you, you know, bring the same way you negotiated that to this issue with sex? So I I don't think it's impossible. The thing that complicates it is the feelings on both sides that come up. And then often there's a negative cycle that started where one person feels guilty for not doing it. The other person feels like they're putting pressure on the person, which makes them feel guilty. And then it just feeds into each other. Yeah, for sure.
0: How, How does having a higher romantic passion or a lower romantic passion affect this process of sexual exploration? And should people even bother, (laughs) I guess, in a relationship that doesn't have as much romantic passion?
1: Well, the thing is, is that I don't know if you can say that there's higher or lower. I mean, some people might say, oh, well, I definitely felt a lot of passion for this one. But if you're a low passion person, like you may not necessarily have anything to compare it to, But um, in the reasons for the high versus low, they're completely different. Sometimes people kick into high passion because they're being denied things that they really want. So then they become kind of like really eager to get it and almost kind of like um, desperate, you know, and so that that energy gets spent that way. But then other people, um, you know, they're low passion and maybe they're low passion because they haven't found the right thing. They haven't found the right person. They haven't found the thing to awaken them or they have um, other barriers in their life. And, um, you know, it, the modern one of the modern um, monsters in life is stress. You know, it's everywhere and it's in so many different ways. And so I, that affects a lot of people's passion, not just in sex, but across all areas of their life. So if you start to look at, okay, I'm not passionate about sex. Am I passionate about anything else in my life? And if the answer is no, well, then you have a global passion problem.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. It's and not necessarily the bedroom.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I I, was just thinking about how you mentioned earlier you work with people with chronic illnesses. And mm. I'm assuming, you know, if you've got so many other things happening in your life, it can be difficult to... Romantic passion is often not a priority or something that you're kind of keeping in mind or sexual exploration is probably not high up on the top of your list.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and if you're dealing with chronic health issues, whether that be physical or mental, um, the passion is often kind of across the board, pretty low.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. But also there's so many people that even though, you know, their bodies may not function the way they want or, you know, mentally they can't get there, they still want to have sexual experiences. They still want to have that sexual pleasure. And, um, And so then it becomes about... How do you, how do you do that? You know, what ways is it important to you? But then also looking at your motivations for having sex. Is it for relaxation? Is it for rehabilitation? Is it just to connect with your partner? Is that a way that you want to connect with your partner? So you look at your motivations and maybe your motivation is, I don't want to ever have sex again. So then that's okay too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And my next question, um, not quite related, but maybe parallel. How do cultural and societal attitudes affect um, the way people experience their sexuality and their romantic passion within their relationship?
1: Well, (laughs) basically, you could write a whole PhD on that. And that's what I've just started to do. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So cool. So, but, but it is, um, it's, it's massive. And I think people don't even realize how much culture affects everything you know there's certain ways that um you know we have the masculine stereotypes that come down the line and then we have the feminine stereotypes that come down the line and one is passive one is more aggressive and that affects how we are in sex so we arrive at the point where we kind of expect men to know everything there is to know about sex when they're coming in but i can't see where they're meant to be learning about it You know, there's not like, it's not like they pull, you know, there's not like a man's school and how to have sex and, you know, how to please your woman. But, you know, in traditional societies, there used to be, there used to be that kind of sexual education that was in, in um, included as part of everyday life, you know. So a lot of ways of being with sex that were really quite beautiful have, have just been erased. So, um... So I think that's why we end up where we are now and then modern society with it's kind of we have every reason to divide and particularly post kind of lockdowns and like the the results of the pandemic and everything, even more reason to just not come together and connect. And I do think there's a crisis of connection and intimacy and really um, a lot of the clients that I see and they're, they're becoming younger and younger is that they don't know how to be intimate They don't know what that means. They don't know, you know, how to manage somebody else's intimacy needs and what they themselves need. So it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of questions that are going around and I don't see many places where people can get answers.
0: I think that it starts very young as well. Like you said, a lot of traditional Older traditional societies had um, this education built in, but now I'm thinking about, you know, growing up in school (laughs) and you have maybe like a week or two of like health ed um, that kind of just tells you how your body changes um, at the time and not really anything beyond that. And it's so true. Like, where are people supposed to learn about sex? Are they going to learn it from porn? Because that's not exactly an educational um, resource.
1: Yeah. And there's been um, kind of questions around, you know, comprehensive uh, sexuality education and comprehensive sexuality education now is pushing to add things like pleasure, you know, and what that means into the curriculum. Because, you know, the studies have shown that the better the sex ed, the less likely, you know, young people are to have sex. Whereas I think people think it's the other way around. Like the more we talk about sex, the more we add this in. Like adding pleasure into sex ed is just like extremely controversial, even though, you know, it could be because of what I do. But I'm just like, I don't understand why, why wouldn't you want to do that? And if you don't want to talk about pleasure with sex, then just talk about pleasure in general, So I've done workshops where I take away all the sex, but all the stuff about pleasure is still exactly the same, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, How,
0: and this is kind of something that we've already touched on, but how can couples communicate more effectively um, their sexual desires and their sexual needs?
1: Yeah, there's, um, there's always a a process that I kind of suggest when, when couples want to get back into the habit of having sex. And that's uh, the first step is to schedule time. And I know that everyone thinks that that seems really boring and like, Oh, I just want to be spontaneous. But I think the whole idea of spontaneity is that you want it's presence. And so it's weird that we can only have spontaneous moments of presence, you know, but if you have the time, set aside and you think I'm going to be present, then you still get the value of the spontaneity and you can still do spontaneous acts in the meantime, but at least you have that time where you know you're going to be together and connected. So um, so that's the first step is to do that and then to negotiate what you need in that moment for that safe, pleasurable and satisfying sexual experience. And so you're like, okay, maybe I just want a massage. Or let's just do um, this type of sex or this type of sexual activity, or let's just cuddle, let's just hug, or let's have an intellectual conversation. Let's talk about stuff we've never talked about before, you know. So all of that is building intimacy, and that's what you need in order to continue the communication, continue the sexual, um, I guess, energy, energy. And um and also to just make the relationship better. Mm. I forgot to mention
0: earlier that I am really looking forward to your PhD on <laughs> how culture um and societal attitudes <laughs> affect sexuality. Uh but I might I think that what we were talking about in how couples can Im- communicate more effectively, I think that links nicely into our practice slash habit experiment debrief, um, where we can kind of talk about how. Uh, the audience can put some of what we've discussed into practice. What is a practice that you have done to build um, romantic passion and explore sexual desire?
1: Okay. The, number one is knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's knowing yourself physically. A lot of times we disconnect from our bodies. We focus on the things that we don't like. And, um, but this is about, and, and there is the idea of self-care, but it, there's, it's not... <laughs> While it's intentional about relaxation or recovery, it's not intentional about discovering what feels good in your body. So if your self-care is to go for a walk, okay, how does that feel in your body? If you're taking a bath, how does that feel in your body? What are your sensitive spots? What are the spots that actually... um, bring up feelings that you can't explain that might be a bit negative. you know. So anything that you can do to get data about your body, like if you're eating delicious food, what is it that you love about it? What do you love about the music that, that you're listening to? What, what is it that gives you energy? What are the things that give you energy, passion that stir you? So knowing those things gives you um, ways to connect with someone else. So number one, know yourself. Number two is having that practice of being able to communicate with your partner, of creating a safe space where you can say things and you can negotiate things. So, um, but you can't negotiate for yourself if you don't know what you want. So the other analogy I always use is that like you're going to a restaurant, um, you don't know what the person wants to eat, if they like the food, if they have any allergies, you know, if they're hungry, but you're going to try to get order them something that satisfies them without talking to them. So you think about all of the communication we put into just ordering food, you know? Yeah. And so the same thing should happen with intimacy and relationships. What do you need? So instead of uh, going straight to the place where you're blaming the person for not giving you what you need, you have to ask, what do I need? How can I help this person give me, give me what I need?
0: Yeah. For sure.
1: So, so that's step two is making space for the communication. So knowing yourself, making space for the communication and then also approaching anything you do with curiosity and wonder. So that's number three. So everything you do, it's okay if you mess if you mess up. It's okay if that doesn't feel good. It's okay if somebody gets hurt. You know, it's not the fact that you get hurt. It's how you're able to recover from it and build on it and improve that because if we don't make mistakes, we can't learn.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So out of, I guess, all of those, what's
0: kind of one, something that maybe um, someone from our audience can put into practice kind of in their day to day life to maybe improve
1: um, or get more comfortable uh, being um, exploring with their partner? Yeah, I would say number one is a pleasure practice. So do something each day that's just about your pleasure you know, and then um, you can reflect on that and think about what that means to you. It could be something that you talk about with your partner, but um, just have a list of the things that give you pleasure. And then, um, you know, when you feel like you need a little bit of pleasure boost, if you feel like things are like you're disconnecting from your partner, that's, that's what you can refer to as a resource.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, again, requires a lot of that self-awareness you were talking
1: about and understanding what brings you pleasure. Exactly. It's self-awareness, self-exploration. But I think if you are in the place where you're constantly exploring yourself, that will automatically translate to exploration within your relationship is if you're curious about like, hmm, why is that like that? You know, whereas I think a lot of times people think, oh, that was bad. It's always going to be bad. There's nothing we can do.
0: Yeah. 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 Fair enough. And
1: what are three good things about having um, that resource for yourself? Uh, number one, it will automatic- automatically make you have better sex. <laughs> number two, it will um, it will allow you to give your partner information about how to please you. And um, number three, the science says it contributes to your overall health and well being.
0: Okay, okay. I, I love that um, you also mentioned that it allows your partner to know what pleases you because it's so handy to just have a list instead of sit down and think about it, especially yeah. if talking is difficult um, at the very beginning.
1: Absolutely. And also, it doesn't mean that your partner can't discover new things that please you. Mm-hmm. But but you should have that information on yourself, mm-hmm. and like you said, um, with you know new things will come because it's kind of a constant process. It doesn't really end. Absolutely. So don't think that list is static or that it's always going to change. As a matter of fact, you should be constantly trying to find new ways, new things to add to the list. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong.
0: I'm assuming some of the things on the list may leave the list as well. Like it, it
1: doesn't have to be constantly providing you with pleasure. Absolutely. I think so. And as our bodies change, as, um, you you know, your life circumstances change, you know, there's lots of reasons why things that give you pleasure, (laughs) stuff like pandemics, you know, (laughs) I used to really love going out to eat, but now it's like, (laughs) like, Hmm, I had to find something to replace that on my list.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, what are the challenges? Uh, with with forming this
1: list? I suppose that there's there's a lot of areas of resistance that can come in. Like we, we don't want to know ourselves because once we start that exploration, what's immediately going to pop up is all of the negative things and the things that we don't like about ourselves. Or if we have a particular mood that we're in, that's not, we're like, I just can't be bothered to think about that right now. I, you know, I don't want anything to do with pleasure. So that's why it's, it's a bit like a muscle. You know, the more you practice exercising it, the more easily it will come to you when you need it. But I, I think, you know, we are we are our greatest strength and we are our own greatest weakness. You know, so it, so you just have to figure out, okay, if I'm in a good space, how can I make the most of this? If I'm in a bad space, what do I need to support myself during those times?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess how where do you kind of what is the process of creating this list and i know that that's a huge question in that there's probably so many different ways and it's like a constant like lifelong process in kind of creating this list but how can people perhaps begin to be to develop that self-awareness what questions should they be asking themselves what should they be identifying um or like what should they recognize
1: um as providing them with pleasure Absolutely. I think a good place to start is with your senses. So, you know, what things do you like to look at? What do you like to eat? You know, what smells do you like? What sounds? What kind of touch? You know, that's such a brilliant place to start and it gives you a lot of immediate data. Um, There's other things just as far as like meditations and things like that to get you into the right space of it. Um, There's different ways that you can try masturbating I would say you don't need to have a monogamous relationship with a sex toy. So, you know, try all different things and explore your body. That can um, be such an important tool for helping you know yourself and know your sexuality and know what gives you pleasure. Mm-hmm.
0: I, mean, I love the phrase, a monogamous relationship with a sex toy. I think that's, a, <laughs> that's one a lot of people have, I'm <laughs> yes. sure. Um, how do you feel like this practice would, this list, I should say, would impact... Uh, people's perception um, within their romantic relationship and and kind of how would it improve it?
1: Well, I think it would, in general, give them a healthier mindset. It will make them feel better about themselves. And often one of the barriers to intimacy and connection and difficulties in having sex is that you don't feel good about yourself. And so then that makes it hard to connect. And then, um, you know, if your partner feels like you're not into it, then they're not into it. And it just becomes like this kind of cycle. So so that's one way. But then also, you know, if you're realizing, oh, it's kind of hard for me to find pleasure in this area, then you can bring that to your partner and have a chat and just be like, well, what, what are ways that we can, you know, improve this? How do, how do we make this better? So I guess it can offer tools for communication, which can lead to connection because essentially that's why it's 80% communication because you connect when you're able to communicate well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do like that, you know, bringing it to your partner kind of makes it feel like you're not doing it alone.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's easy to be siloed and feel really isolated. And that seems to be the current theme at the moment. So even when we do a lot of work on ourselves and we're like, okay, this is my identity, a lot of times it becomes a barrier because you're like fighting to get people to understand you on the basis of that identity. But then that means that you have to kind of take a defensive position so that people don't hurt you or that they're aware of where you're coming from. So then it's about like how can you find ways to still connect with people you know, how can you maintain your identity but still be able to connect? Because once you connect, people can more easily understand. So then you don't have to do as much work to try to get people to understand where you're coming from.
0: Would you recommend this practice to everyone? I do.
1: <laughs> it's it's one of the starting places um, when people first come and see me. And um, it's, it's met with um, varying degrees of success because I think people it's very hard for them to do the work. It's very hard work to work on yourself. And um, so, uh, you know, I don't blame people for not wanting to do it. And then to think you had to do it the whole rest of your life. Oh.
0: <laughs> and I think what you were saying earlier is that, you know, the self-esteem is, is, makes such a big difference in kind of allowing yourself to even just Explore. But if you have a low self esteem, this kind of what is essentially a practice of
1: self awareness and becoming more aware of yourself, I feel like that would be really confronting for some people. Absolutely. But I guess the thing is, and what I always encourage people is that you don't have to like yourself, you know, but there's, but no, it, very rarely do people hate every single thing about themselves. So, what parts do you like? What parts are you really grateful for your body for providing for you? You know how has your body taken care of you and supported you? You know how can you focus on those things, and you know just just do compassion and gratitude towards yourself. Like very few people can deny that they deserve that at the very least. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, side addendum, you should try to like yourself, though. I think <laughs>
0: I think that's pretty important.
1: Uh, at least at least um fifty percent. I think is good enough. I I, I think it's th- there's varying ways because you're gonna have days where you don't like yourself. There's days where you don't like anything, you know. But but part of supporting yourself is making space for that. Like okay, in what I tell a lot of people, you know, if they have menstrual cycles as well, there's gonna be a week or so where you don't like yourself. So what do you do to support yourself during that period? Yeah. Now, if you have your list of pleasure things, then you know you can do that. So even if you don't feel like doing it, but you know that you need to do it as a practice, at least you're nurturing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that will give you currency for when you're back up.
0: Yeah, that is so true. That's so true. Um, And that comes back to what you were saying about self-care as well and and having like a a pleasure, a list of ways that you can engage in the pleasure aspect of self-care.
1: Yeah, because when you're mentally unable to think of anything, at least you can have a list. And I'm not saying you're just going to like say no to everything on the list, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. you can make a commitment to yourself that like, even if I don't feel like it, I'm going to try yeah. to do one thing, yeah. the least painful thing on the list at this moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, is there kind of a practice or a habit that you would combine the list with? Um, besides masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so put that on the list for sure (laughs) to Tamara's listening. (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, I think, you know, going back to what I was saying in the beginning about any way that you can be creative Mm -hmm. and expansive um, is only going to help you, you know, because it it really taps into that curiosity and wonder and it gives you um, a way to be open. And very much everything about sex, intimacy and relationships is all about openness. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Um, so that kind of brings us to the end of that segment. Uh, we might move on to some questions from the audience. Are you happy to answer them? Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, first question is, uh, does my gender identity affect the way I experience sexual attraction?
1: Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the way that it's broken down is, um, you know, you sexual attraction does, I feel, um, it, it's different for everyone. It does exist on a spectrum. So um, it's very tricky for me to answer this because I I don't usually use categories. So if someone comes to me and says, okay, I think I might be same-sex attracted, then what we do is we unpack what turns them on. Um, you know, what causes desire and arousal, you know, you know, what patterns do they recognize in their sexuality? How do they want to be in their sexuality? So your gender identity can absolutely affect your um, sexual attraction. But also if you're doing that sexual exploration, then you might find out within that, what are the nuances? What's the big picture, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, The next question is, how can couple I, I think we've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but how can couples address and resolve conflicts related to
1: uh, sexual differences in their relationship? Yeah, that it's it does take a lot of work. Um, if you reach the point where um you feel like like you're really stuck, then it's it's a process of coming to see someone like myself because, there's a lot of things to unpack. Sometimes it's historical, sometimes it's current, sometimes the the body's not working properly, sometimes there's built-up resentments that need to be unraveled. And couples need a safe space where they can kind of say the things without fear of hurting each other. In the absence of that, when you you really need to cultivate within the relationship a way to say things to each other. to create that space so that you can say things without, without hurting each other. Um, You can try writing letters to each other if it feels like too confrontational to like come together and talk, but also ask each other, okay, we need to talk about what's going on with our sex. What do you need to feel safe enough to have that conversation? You know, so, so it's kind of always goes back to what do you need to feel safe?
0: I also really like um, the uh, option of writing letters to each other. Something about that feels way more intimate, um, especially emotionally. I think sometimes. I mean, obviously, not that having a conversation is not intimate, but it kind of reminds me of you know your Jane Austen kind of
1: <laughs> old romantic novels and that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, and I think um, you know couples reach different different levels. Uh, like it builds up to a certain point where it's like okay, we have to completely reset the relationship. You have to completely relearn how to be with sex, with each other. And it starts just by like being able to stand, being able to touch each other at the most basic level, yeah. you know? So yeah. so how can you break it down? Like, okay, we don't feel safe doing this type of sex anymore. Let's take it back. And what what would make us feel intimate and connected? First physically, and then once you sort out how you can stand to be physically together then you can add the sexual component to it right yeah yeah that's
0: sounds is a lot of work but I'm sure
1: always comes to a worthwhile conclusion for people it is and I think that's what you have to realize is that it is a lot of work but people don't they don't know that they don't know how to do it and there's not they don't know where to get the resources to do it
0: Is there a point where sexual exploration can overshadow other aspects of a romantic relationship?
1: I think, I think yes. And it always just goes back to um, intimacy and connection. So if a big part of your sexual activity is like, yeah, we're going to always try new things. We're always going to do new things. You know, um, just like, unfortunately, things can't expand for forever. You know, or if you're going to, um, you have to find new ways to expand. So maybe you expanded physically. So how can we expand, expand um, intellectually? How can we expand emotionally? So you, the more levels of connection that you have, um, the more ways you have to expand the relationship that will give you currency to feed into sexual activity and sexual exploration. But I think if you're doing it to the point where you start to disconnect... And you lose intimacy, then um, unless you say, okay, we, we don't really care about that, then, um, th- then it's going to hurt the relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess the final question is, how can sexual passion, is it distinct from a general passion in life? Is there something about it that makes it different?
1: Um, I guess with sexual passion, there's the biological urge there, you know, Um, so it could be, and that's to have sex, you know, and sometimes I think people have a hard time realizing what that is, you know, but but, but it is like kind of like a restlessness. It is a primal kind of feeling. And some people, that's exactly what they're drawn to is that kind of primal urge. And so I, I think that that's, OK, if that's what you're into. Um, I'm not going to say that there's a hierarchy of passions. Um, it, that's one of the legacies of the past is that sexual passion is low and base. And that's part of the reason why we don't know how to be with sex now. is because we've been told that it's, it's less than all the other passions.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: But it is a driving force. Um, it's behind a lot of art. And creative endeavors. And, um, so I think it just needs a way to be expressed as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that brings us to the end of our questions to our audience. So thank you very much for
0: answering them. Uh, we now have our final segment, um, our open mic, where I allow you to have a mini Ted talk <laughs> about whatever you want, whatever you feel is important to talk about at this point in time. Uh, Toya, what did you have in mind?
1: I suppose that the thing that I'm noticing the most um, in my work and um, in, in the research, I'm kind of in the dreaming stage of my PhD. So um, I've been asked, how do you want to change the world? And I'm like, what? Is that even a thing? Can one person change the world? But I guess it's um, it's kind of been changed to what's how, what do I want to give to the world to make life easier for people? And I really think it's about their abilities to intimately connect. I do think that there is a crisis of connection at the moment and that people don't know how to do it. I have clients that I'm kind of coaching through the dating process and like all of that and and how to navigate that. And really the key thing that I'm doing is teaching them how to be their authentic self and feel safe with another person, you know, to present the most authentic version of themselves that they're comfortable with to another person. So you see how I say it comes back to knowing yourself. Yeah. So that that if if you if you know yourself then that's what gives you somebody else to connect with. That's what the other person is connecting with. But if you're trying to do everything that they need, everything that they want, then um, number one, if it doesn't work out, it's going to hurt way more because you're like, I gave and gave and gave, and this person didn't connect at all. And what happened? I feel so used. But if you're yourself, and they don't like that, somehow that's better because you're like, oh well, you know. You tried. <laughs> you I tried. I tried anything else. Like you I know, did my it, best. <laughs> it's kind of like um, you know, like the, the color of my skin. Like I can't do anything about that. So you know, you don't like that, then you don't like that. So so that's what I guess helping people to become more intimate to also realize the importance of intimacy and how it makes us healthier and more connected with society. And um, my concern is that as we develop and shape our identities, we use them to to become more separated instead of more connected.
0: Yeah, for sure. that's really important and i'm also again very excited to, to read that phd um i really wish you all the best of luck because i've got friends who are in the process of writing their own phds and yeah it's a it's a whole thing <laughs> yes yes um but thank you so much uh for joining us on the show so far and sharing everything that you know where can the audience
1: find you uh probably the best first stop is my website com. And um, that says everything that I'm doing, everything that I've done, and then also if people want to book appointments or whatever. I have some resources. Um, I've developed this deck of um, kind of it's, – it's a pleasure deck, so it's just self-guided activities that you can do, and you can just kind of draw it as a card. And then in a very pretty way, the cards all fit together to form um, – a picture, a bigger picture. So like as you do each one, you can kind of put together and try to put together the puzzle. So you get it. It's like parallel to you putting together yourself. So um, yeah, um, that's probably the best way to connect with me. And I love to connect with people. I love to have chats and everything.
0: Absolutely. Thank you again so much. I've had such a great time. Um, I've learned so much. And uh, this has been such a cool episode. I
1: think that people listening are going to really enjoy it. All right. It's been a joy to be here and to talk about one of my favorite things.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Lab. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Adhati Kutti. Thanks for tuning in.